Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And today I'm joined by Dr. Karen Lynn Sueta, who is a veterinary behaviorist out in Los Angeles, California. And she's joining us today to talk about her published work in September 2019, Clinician's Brief, entitled Canine Compulsive Disorder. I cannot wait to have a deep dive into this conversation and to get more information out there to all of our practitioners when it comes to this somewhat, you know, stressful condition that we have to kind of make sure we're navigating the space correctly. And we have got Dr. Karen Suedit here with us today as an expert. Dr. Suedit, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Becky. It's so wonderful being here today. And I have to say, this is my first podcast. Yay, I love it. Well, thank you. And I love when I get to um, welcome somebody for their very first podcast. Hopefully, it won't be too painful. I can say I've had some repeat guests, so I think we kind of make it <laughs> as fun as we can. What I love about this conversation and this content, though, is we can spread this message far and wide, and I think it's so important. We know that there are a lot of folks who get a chance to read these articles when they are published but then have a lot of questions and want more information. And that's what we're here to do. And when it comes to canine compulsive disorder, I really do think that there is a lot of information that people will have questions about and, and more information that they want to know. So before that, I just want to ask a little bit about your background. Dr. Suetta, tell me a little bit about where you came from, how you got here and how you ended up in behavior. That's a great question. So mm -hmm. I'm actually originally from Hawaii. So shout out to all our listeners who, who might be from Hawaii. And I went into vet school actually really interested in behavior. So back in college, I was actually trying to decide whether to do, you know, the animal behavior, you know, master's PhD route or go into vet school. And I will say that I had a little bit of an Oprah moment. So I was, it was spring break. I was stuck in the dorms. My friend lent me her TV and all of a sudden on Oprah, there was a veterinary behaviorist, Dr. Nick Dodman from Tufts, who was on her show to talk about a book that he had published about veterinary behavior. And it was kind of the oh moment of, wow, I can combine these two things that I'm really interested in. So I went into vet school, you know, knowing that I wanted to do a, a residency and, and get a, you know, become board certified in, in veterinary behavior. And, you know, many, many years later, here I am on your show. That's outstanding. And, and were you one of the kids that knew they wanted to be a veterinarian their whole life growing up or did that come along later in life? No, it's always something to do with animals. You know, that I went through wanting to be a vet or a marine biologist, but but I was that weird kid that would go out into the yard and like look at like lizards and birds and like wonder what they were doing. And that's I think what really spurred my my interest in and just really understanding why animals did did the things they do. Nothing weird about that. I feel like that's <laughs> like the majority of our listeners are like, what's weird about that? You are, you are with your hashtag squad. So, you know, the first thing I think, you know, before we start talking about this, the article that you wrote again, the September 2019 clinician's brief, canine compulsive disorders. Can you just, you know, tell us a little bit more overview compulsive disorders and, and the most common kinds of them? Yeah, absolutely. Like, let's go ahead and, and start with the definition. So right. I like throwing this out just because I think it really encapsulates 
everything about compulsive disorders. So, you know, canine compulsive disorders are abnormal, repetitive behaviors that are typically stemming from some sort of anxiety or stress and don't seem to have an apparent trigger. And we've already ruled out other physical and behavioral causes. And, you know, the reason that we want to really exclude any other, either physical or behavioral reasons for it is just because there's so many behaviors that dogs and cats show that can either be normal or abnormal, but due to an underlying medical cause, or even abnormal, but due to another behavioral cause other than compulsive disorders. So, you know, if I throw out an example out there, for instance, licking is a normal grooming behavior of dogs or cats. But if a dog is licking an area that's been injured, you know, maybe he got bitten by a flea and now he has a hot spot. That's a, you know, a repetitive licking behavior, but due to a physical cause. Or I had a case where a dog was repetitively licking his carpus, you know, giving himself an acrolick lesion, but it was secondary to separation anxiety. The licking only occurred when the owner was gone. And that was a, a displacement behavior because that dog was anxious in the, the absence of his, of his dad. So there's a lot of other reasons for a dog to be doing a behavior that's repetitive, but maybe normal or abnormal, just not due to, to compulsive disorder. And so when it comes to compulsive disorder, it basically means there is no known, no tangible, traceable trigger. This behavior is just happening, correct? Exactly. And it may be something where it started being triggered by something, but now has kind of become almost uncoupled from that trigger. So for instance, if that dog that was licking its carpus, we resolve the separation anxiety and now the dog just does it when his dad is home or when he's not home or when the wind blows the wrong way or a leaf falls, then it's not coupled anymore with that initial trigger situation. So this is is something that I find is a, a topic that I find incredibly interesting and relevant in the work that I do with the ASPCA field investigation response team, because we often see dogs that have been part of hoarding situations, have been part of fighting situations. And often we see these types of behaviors in these animals uh, manifesting. And, and I think for practitioners, and, and medical personnel and behavioral personnel, there's always this, are we missing something else? Are we missing an actual cause that we could help to offset this? We, we know we want to get rid of the trigger for the behavior if we possibly can. Is it truly come down to a diagnosis of, of exclusion? And, and is there any way to really make traceable connections? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what it really starts off with is just getting a really good behavioral and medical history. And, you know, in, in our 15 or 20 minute appointments, I know that can be really difficult to do yeah. sometimes, but there's a lot of good resources out there. There's a lot of textbooks or even online websites that, you know, have um, good behavioral history forms that you can even pass to your clients before the appointment, have them fill that out, just so you can get some, some documentation about the progression of the, the behavior. Videotape, everybody has a smartphone in their pocket nowadays. As long as it's safe to do so, if they can bring in videotape of their pet engaging in that behavior, a picture is worth a thousand words and video is probably worth a million. So oftentimes that kind of stuff really helps us understand exactly what's going on. So starting off with a good behavioral and medical history often sets the stage for being able to make that diagnosis. 
And what are some manifestations of the compulsions? Like what are we seeing these guys do? It's a lot of weird stuff. That can, yeah. so, so really common ones are dogs that are tail chasing or spinning, dogs that are chasing shadows or light. So reflections, you know, your reflection off of your watch or your phone, you know, dogs that are, are following those. I've seen dogs that are kind of doing very very stereotyped running around the yard. You know, it'll be, I'm going to run into in a clockwise direction around the perimeter of the yard for an hour. You know, even things like licking. I'm going to, I mentioned before, you know, the licking of one spot, those acrolic lesions, or we can delve into some of the really kind of bizarre behaviors. Dogs that walk a few steps and then take a look at their their back end, kind of these hind end checking yeah. dogs or flank sucking. You know, they'll actually literally take their mouths and, and start sucking on their side. So unusual behaviors that just don't seem quite normal. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it's funny because there is a lot, you know, I've, I've dealt with a lot of these different dogs before. And, you know, sometimes there are, are manifestations that are actually quite harmful and there's some that maybe don't come off as compulsive. I think it's easy to say, oh, he gets the zoomies or, oh, he, he just really gets excited about those types of things. And maybe our owners aren't recognizing it as a compulsive disorder. What actually defines it as being compulsive outside of being any other cause? Like when you talk about chasing, like say the light off your watch, to me, this is a, a pretty normal behavior of any animal. When does it become compulsive? It becomes compulsive when it starts interfering with that pet's quality of life. You know, it's normal, you know, to chase a light or a shadow, but when that light or shadow goes away, does the dog focus for the next hour looking where that thing is? Or <laughs> does that dog start going to that door waiting for those shadows to to appear, you know, the light that's reflected off the panes of the glass in, in the door? So how much mental energy is that dog devoting to engaging in that behavior. And when that behavior is interrupted, how does that dog react? Is it like, oh, okay, the light went away. I'm going to go grab my toy and lie down and, and chew on that. Or is it, oh my gosh, that light went away. I don't know what to do with myself. Is that light coming back? I don't know. So it's about kind of, is that really an impacting that, that pet's quality of life? And then is that impacting mom and dad, you know, the pet owner's quality of life, you know, are they worried about what their pet is doing? As a former owner of a compulsive dog with those light reflections, it's funny how you will adapt to your pet and how hypervigilant we became of anything causing any reflection in the mm -hmm. house. And the minute one would hit the wall, you were just like diving on whatever the object was to get rid of it because it did turn into hours and hours of seeking that light out. So I, I do think it's, it's a pretty established line, but it's funny how our clients will actually overcome compensate or will operate in a way of to not cause the trigger as opposed to sometimes addressing the trigger. Yeah, absolutely. We become very good copers in, <laughs> yeah. in these situations. And, you know, to bring back a point that you had said earlier, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that these behaviors are problematic for the pet. You know, we see so many of these funny YouTube videos that go viral oh, of, yes. you know, 
dogs that are, you know, chasing their tail and it's going on and on and on. And we laugh about it, but taking it a step further is, you know, how does that dog feel when they're chasing their tail? Are they, are they happy doing it because it lasts for a, a minute and then it's done? Or is this something that's really impacting that pet's quality of life because it's going on for a really long time and and resulting in back injury or tail trauma or or something like that. Sure. And I just think metabolically an endocrine system, like if you're having that stress release constantly, that that urge to get your tail in this kind of internal stress factor, it would seem like there would be some long-term impacts on our pets. Absolutely. So let me ask you this too. The title of your article itself is canine compulsive disorder. Is this something that we see in cats? Yes, we do. So cats also have their their little quirks. That's why we love them. But some of their <laughs> behaviors are are to me, you know, even even stranger than some of the dog behaviors. So we, we've all seen those cats as veterinary professionals that are over grooming themselves. The cats like low their abdomen, their legs are are completely bald. So that's one manifestation. The one that really is striking to me are cats that have a, what we call feline hyperesthesia syndrome. So all yeah. of a sudden their skin starts rippling. They might stare back at their tail. Some of these cats may attack their tail. So, you know, who knows what's going on in, in that cat's brain. And then what really is is heart-wrenching are cats that have pica, the ones that are eating fabric, you know, they're chewing holes out of their mom or dad's fleece, you know, throws or coming in and have to undergo surgery because they've eaten fabric or a toy or something like that and and have to have um, an anerotomy or part of their intestines resected. So those are the, the really hard ones, I think, for me to see. Yeah, I think about the kitties that you see where like 47 rubber bands or hair ties have come out of their tummies. How how long and ongoing that must be causing inflammatory and and digestive pain for our animals. And you're right, especially with cats, we don't always see these things. So I think it's an important thing to note that this can apply to them as well. And I mean, at Clinician's Brief, we are small animal focused, but I'm just curious. I mean, I think about feather picking in birds and Mm -hmm. uh, does this happen? You know, I think about um, like cribbing behaviors in horses. Do you deal with this in other species as well? Yeah, absolutely. Those are great examples. So the feather picking in birds, cribbing in horses, even our zoologic species, uh, when they're starting to see, you go to the zoo and you see some of these swaying or pacing elephants or the polar bear that is kind of stereotypically and compulsively walking the perimeter of their fence or the tiger that's going to one side of the enclosure and then turning on its left foot and walking back to the right side and then turning on its right foot. So very compulsive and and very stereotyped movement. We see this in in a variety of different, different species. It's funny. I think when you start to open your eyes to it, you probably could see it just about everywhere. And I, I think it's such an important thing. So, okay, let's talk about getting it into the clinic. So now our clients are here and we're concerned. I want to know more, I guess, about the diagnostic process in general, because, you know, there's a lot of different manifestations. We've talked about that. But my concern or I guess my question really is, it's like, do we have to get down to an MRI or CAT scan to, to rule <laughs> out comfortably to, to whittle it all the way down to compulsive disorder? Yeah, I'm never going to say no to more information <laughs> as a clinician. But wouldn't okay. it be nice if every clinic had an MRI in their back room and Please? it was going to require anesthesia and it was $5? So. Yes. Can we just have that? Yeah, it'd be wonderful. But 
you know, that brings up a great question is, yes, it would be wonderful if we could rule out every single medical possibility for these pets. But diagnostically and financially and logistically, that's often not possible for a lot of these cases. The good thing is that uh, history taking is free. You know, if, yeah. so if we start with just a great get a history for behavioral history form, get a good medical review, some medical records, and get a good medical history, oftentimes that can lead us down certain pathways. So part of it is really looking at getting that information and then thinking about what is looking for those horses and not zebras. You know, if this is a, let's say, German shepherd that's tail chasing, thinking about, hey, this is a a breed that's predisposed to lumbosacral disease. And could there be some lumbosacral pain that's causing him to focus on his rear end? So should I do a really thorough, you know, orthopedic and neurologic exam and let the findings of that guide you of, hey, at least can we rule out some basic medical issues before we assume that this is a behavioral disorder. So that makes me kind of wonder, is there like a medication rule out process that where you would say, for example, I I can't imagine why you would go to German Shepherd for a compulsive conversation first, but, (laughs) you know, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, of course. But, you know, it's like if we give this guy NSAIDs and the behavior stops or do we give this guy some behavioral mod drugs and see this behavior? How do you kind of approach that first? And and, I mean, I get it. Like we do x-rays, we do blood work, we rule out all the obvious, everything on physical exam seems normal. So, I mean, it makes sense. Obviously, you know, you do an exam, you look at the musculoskeletal system, you find some back pain, that makes sense. But when we don't get that, when everything looks pretty normal, do you go through a process of sort of rule out through medication management or how, how would you whittle it down more? Yeah, that's a great question. So if we decided as a clinician, hey, you know, we've ruled out the obvious things. And the reason I bring up German Shepherds as as a breed Mm -hmm. is that one, there are certain breed predilections for certain types of compulsive disorders. And in my mind, there's there's reasons for that. So uh, spinning and tail chasing is a really common compulsive disorder in German Shepherds. But hey, yeah, they're also a breed that have orthopedic issues and lumbosacral issues. So is a reason that they're focusing on, they're known for being tail chasers and and focusing on their hind end because they have other physical reasons to to be interested in their their, their butts. Um, So yeah, like in those kind of cases, doing a pain management trial, like you said, doing an NSAID trial would be great. You know, if we do an NSAID trial may help unlikely to hurt in most dogs and that behavior improves by 50%, that may help guide us to doing more diagnostics. But if we have ruled out most of the, the general medical problems, then absolutely treating it as a, my highest index of suspicion is a compulsive disorder. Let's treat this as a compulsive disorder with behavior modification, training, and medication. Let's give this a couple of months and see if that behavior improves. And if not, that may be telling us something too, that we need to go down more of a a physical or medical diagnostic route afterwards. I hesitate to ask this, but I kind of can't help it. I want to know what about when a dog is just bored? And I feel like it can be obviously part of it is that history taking. But 
sometimes we have to see through a little bit of what our clients tell us. Um, I know that, you know, I tell my doctor a little bit more of what he wants to hear than maybe the exact (laughs) science behind. And obviously, if I'm trying to get the root of a medical condition, I'm fully transparent, right? But on like a wellness visit, I might just say, well, yeah, one to two drinks a month. That's all. So when do we kind of coach our clients around these breeds that are just sometimes so underworked for what they're meant to be? Mm-hmm. It's interesting that a lot of the breeds that have these types of behaviors really are breeds that we as, you know, as we as stupid humans have bred to, to yeah. have a certain job and have certain behavioral traits that we no longer use them for in a lot of cases. So, you know, those border collies, gosh, super, super smart dogs that were meant to be out there working for most of the day, keeping their eye on the sheep that are out there. You know, is it any wonder that, hey, if they're going to be at home for eight hours of a day doing nothing, if they were bred to be watchful, then now these are dogs that are doing a lot of light chasing or fly snapping or doing some of these repetitive behaviors because their brains just don't have an outlet. So yes, lack of an outlet for a very intelligent animal can play a role in compulsive disorders. And providing more mental stimulation is always part of a behavioral treatment plan. However, it's not just boredom that, you know, when a compulsive behavior is truly existing and has been diagnosed, just providing mental stimulation is not enough oftentimes because there's already been a pattern that's been established. So it's really hard to say, hey, don't think about the light that's coming up. Here's a bunch of food puzzle toys instead. Oftentimes that's not enough of distraction. It'd be, it'd be like the same thing of asking a person with an obsessive compulsive disorder to say, hey, don't think about all the germs that are on your phone. Here, take up knitting instead. It's probably not going to be enough to help that person cope with the anxiety that's, that's underpinning that behavior. Ooh, that's a beautiful example because so what you're basically saying is once the damage is done, the damage is done, right? So if we if we get to a point where this behavior is manifesting, kind of maybe whatever caused it there, we may not be able to get away from that behavior just because we address the initial cause. We may have moved past that. Absolutely. So it depends on the degree to which the the behavior is going, how long it's been going on, and, and the severity of it. So the dog that is been practicing this behavior for a long time, you know, it's not coupled with any specific trigger anymore. Just running that dog for five miles a day or giving it a lot of toys to play with is not going to really address that underlying you know, psychological cause anymore. We've, we've gone past that point. And so to that point, I kind of, I guess what I want to do is address that in the sense of when we know it is secondary to something else. So again, whether it's a, a pain or neurologic condition, can we treat, are we treating the behavioral component with the medical component at the same time? Or how do we sort through that? Yeah, treating, we always want to make sure that we're treating both the dog or, or cat physically as well as behaviorally. So it's you know, really a holistic approach. So even those dogs that, let's say we do find an underlying medical condition, at that point, the behavior may have been practiced often enough that even once we address the medical component of it, the behavior may still 
may still occur because we've established those neural pathways already. So it's not uncommon for a, a dog, let's say, let's go back to that, that spinning German shepherd example, for that dog to, to have some lumbosacral pain. And maybe that's 60% of, of a contributing factor. We address that with some, some pain medication, you know, maybe some physical therapy and rehab. But the behavior has gotten better, but is not resolved. And that's where behavior modification and training can still come into play. So even once that behavior has been addressed from a medical standpoint, it's always good to talk to the client about, hey, when, when the dog does start tail chasing or spinning, here's what to do when that happens. Maybe there is an underlying anxiety component that we haven't addressed yet. Let's talk about medications that may help reduce that dog's psychologic reasons for engaging in that behavior. So uh, from the general practitioner standpoint, if we feel pretty comfortable, we've we've narrowed this down or we're treating this as compulsive disorder, do you still recommend specialty workup? I do. And that really depends on the availability of specialists in your area, but and also the interest that you have in, in being able to work these, these cases up. So most general practitioners are fabulous at addressing all of that medical component of it. You know, obviously, if you feel that this is a dog that needs to see a neurologist or a dermatologist, it's just a little bit outside of your own personal wheelhouse, absolutely, you know, get those specialists on board as part of the team. What I do find is that a lot of general practitioners just find behavior treatment very daunting for a number of different reasons. You know, unfortunately, we don't get a lot of behavioral training, you know, veterinary school. Um, Not every vet school had a board certified veterinary behaviorist on staff. So we might not have gotten a lot of training in that particular field. And admittedly, it takes a lot of time getting that behavioral diagnosis takes usually more than that 15 minute appointment can allot for. And the the constant follow-up for these clients, you know, often can be very time-consuming. So in those cases, if you have the ability to refer to a veterinary behaviorist, by all means, I really encourage people to do so because this is our our bread and butter. And so we're used to dealing with the follow-up, the diagnostics, the follow-up that's needed often for these cases. So I guess kind of to that point and, and paralleling it, if as a practitioner, I suspect compulsive disorder, but I'm not 100% comfortable, I still want a little bit more information, and we had the ability to refer to neuro or behavior, how do we choose between the two? If you feel that there's a high index of suspicion that this is a truly compulsive disorder. You know, you you did your neurologic exam and you don't you didn't find anything that is a big standpoint uh, or that stands out. I would refer to a veterinary behaviorist because as a behaviorist, you know, we're, we're veterinarians first and foremost. So we can do the, the rule outs for orthopedic disease, neurologic disease, dermatologic disease. So we can, we can look at the dog from a medical standpoint as well. But if, again, you didn't think that it was medical and you were suspicious, more strongly suspicious that it was behavioral, a veterinary behaviorist can guide that client through behavioral diagnosis and, and treatment plan. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. How successfully do these cases resolve really once they're managed? Resolution is pretty rare. Yeah. So the hard part, again, is that we're we're treating a chronic disease process. So any behavioral problem, I really look at as a chronic disease akin to 
diabetes or renal failure. It's not something that we have a cure for, meaning that I wish there was that magic pill that we could give and all of your fears and anxieties go away. But we don't have that yet. <laughs> but you know, similar to chronic condition like, like diabetes, there's no cure for it yet. But there's a lot of good treatment and management options that provide a much better quality of life. So oftentimes I'm, I'm counseling my clients that our goal is improvement in your pet's behavior, which causes an improvement in your pets and your quality of life. Yeah. We, we may not be able to solve or cure your dog's anxiety or the compulsive behavior that may result from anxiety, but can we just get your dog better? And better may be 90% of the time your dog is not engaging in this behavior. And when it does, it's a lot easier to disrupt. He can go about his, his day-to-day life. Maybe once in a while, he's engaging in the fly snapping or the light chasing or the, the spinning. But can that those episodes decrease in frequency and severity? That's really what we're looking for. Need help financing an acquisition, expansion, remodeling, or starting up? With a division built by a DVM and former business owners, they know the business and they can help you reach your financial goals. Learn more at ffb1.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. And to that point, I'm going to bring you into the keep it brief segment, but not a lot of stress here because we rarely keep it brief. I just kind of want to know how you talk to the whole team and go about a whole team approach on this. I feel like these types of cases are emotionally taxing on clients, but also on the staff and practitioners. And in some of these cases are incredibly severe. We know that. So how do you manage the associated stress and anxiety in clients and staff? Absolutely. And that's such a great question, especially in this day and age where well-being of our veterinary community is very, very important. And so these cases really can be traumatizing, not just to the pet, but to our clients. And of course, us seeing it as is our veterinary team can be really draining. So behavior, especially, I feel really involves a team approach, even more so than some of the other specialties, is it really takes a village with behavior because we all need to work together to help our clients and patients. So it starts off with even our phone and front reception staff. Can they help you send out those behavior history forms before the appointment? Are they seeing some of these behaviors in the reception area? Oftentimes, behavioral problems are what I call door handle problems is as the the vet is leaving the appointment, you know, their hands on the doorknob, (laughs) the client's mentioning, oh, by the way, my dog spins or, you know, by the way, my cat's eating stuff at home and I'm trying to get stuff away from him. So as a vet, you know, you can't always spend the time another 30 minutes talking to the client about this, but our veterinary team, our technicians, our reception staff, our phone operators, they can be such a lifeline to these clients. When your hand's on that door handle, that's a great time to say like, hey, you know, I'm really interested in this. I want to get some more information from you. I'm going to have our veterinary nurse come in and 
get a little more information on you. She's going to give you a history form to fill out. You can email that back to us, get a video of your pet's behavior, and let's set up a time to sit down and talk about this. So, you know, we really can have our great staff helping us make that get that history. Once we make a diagnosis, they can get the, on the phone and, and talk to the clients about, hey, you know, we started Fluffy on some some medication and some training. How is that going? So they're the ones that we can really get to, to help us communicate with our clients, get information. But also so many of our staff are really interested in behavior too. And I think it's a really great place for our veterinary team to shine and really buy into that they can make a difference in a lot of these cases because it really does take a village to treat behavior problems. Yeah. And and I think you're absolutely right. And I think when you provide them with the knowledge and the baseline foundational information of behavior, why this is happening, what's causing it, sometimes it takes a little bit of the emotional factor out of it. I think they can think of it more, quote unquote, logically. And and maybe not get so wrapped up in the anthropomorphism of this just looks and feels really sad, even though it absolutely is, because we know it, it takes a toll. Thank you so much for highlighting the support staff and the role here. As I'm always saying, you know, if you aren't really interested in behavior in your practice, I guarantee you there is someone who is. Um, and, and look to your support staff for that because they can spearhead these projects, spearhead these conversations. And it's it's so important to have that whole team knowledgeable. Thank you for talking about your CSRs. They're incredibly important. And you're absolutely right. They're the front lines. They're going to be doing a lot of this interacting. And sometimes they're the ones who really take the, the time to have that emotional connection because I feel like they can. So, um, you know, it's, it's an important aspect. And thank you for outlining it. Thank you for everything you've outlined today. There's so much great information in here. I think we have to think about compulsive disorder as a quality of life issue. And I think you've really helped to shine some light on that. Thank you for having me and, let, and giving me this opportunity to, to talk about behavior, which is, which is something obviously I'm very passionate about and is, is a huge part of my life too. We hear that passion and feel that passion. And, and honestly, we share it. And so I know for a fact, we're going to have you back. Tell me just before we let you go, what are your favorite resources? Where can we get more information for people who are really excited and want to learn more about this? Well, Clinician's Brief has such a wonderful library of articles. That's a great place to start. There's links um, on these articles to behavioral history forums as well. And the further reading sections of a lot of the articles will highlight behavior textbooks that have a lot of good information to share both with clients as well as staff. So I think that's a really great place to start. Thanks again to today's guests for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.